0: We are in Acts chapter 10. We are going to be starting this morning in verse 34. Would you stand with me? Another one bites the dust. That cracked me up when, when we did that. <laughs> um, we're going to be looking at thir- verses 34 to 43 today. And we're, we're pretty much, you know, in, in the central portion, if you will, of this 10th chapter, a very pivotal chapter, if you will, within the book of Acts, and I think that this passage, uh, in fact, the, the first two verses that we're going to read, uh, I believe, are the key verses within this chapter, uh, if not in this section of the book of Acts, going back to chapter 8, when we were looking at uh, uh, Philip uh, being sent to Samaria, right, and, and we see the word of God spreading, not just among the Jews only, but also the the Sumerians, what the Jews had had a really hard time with, just uh, uh, because of their bloodline and so forth. And now we see Peter entering into the house of um, Cornelius in Caesarea, and we see him beginning to give his message here in this particular passage. So just follow along with me, if you will, reading verses 34 Through 43. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts through this passage. Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who is with us even now, would be be poured out upon us in a way that, that, that we receive from him The wisdom and discernment that we need in receiving this word. Lord, give us understanding that only you can give to us through your spirit. Might he teach us? Might he lead us into all of your truth? Might he glorify the name of Jesus as we're gathered together today? Do your will in our lives, in our hearts, in our souls this day as well. And God, thank you. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. We see here in this passage, Peter, the Apostle Peter, of course, entering into this Gentile home, belonging to Cornelius, a soldier of the the Roman Empire. A centurion, having charge over a hundred other soldiers, and you know, we, it, it's hard for us. It's hard for us, e- even though we we experience in our lives. We, we we understand the reality of different kinds of of prejudices. Uh, whether it's a racial prejudice, whether it's an economic prejudice, whether it's a national kind of a prejudice, or or whatever it might be you know we, we understand those things and you know as, as serious as those things can be you know I, I don't know if any of those rise to rise to the level of the kind of prejudices that were within the jewish people within the jewish people in terms of their sense that the word of god was for them and yeah others could come but they would never, never, ever really be equal with them as physical Jews, as as people who are directly in or, or, or um, direct descendants from Abraham, physically. You know, um, and it, it just a uh, incredible, incredible thing that God is doing in this chapter. We've been talking about it for a few weeks already, but we can't overstate the importance of this chapter in the sense of God making himself available to Jew and Gentile alike. And as Peter says here in this 34th and 35th verse, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This was revolutionary to Peter as a Jewish man. And as word spread of what's going on here, it would be revolutionary among the, the Jewish people, and, and we're going to see in the 11th chapter, the, the um, Pharisees in particular rise up and say, what on earth are you doing, Peter, walking into a Gentile man's home? What is up with you? What happened to you? And basically what Peter's response is, well, the Holy Spirit happened to me. That's why. <laughs> you know, kind of, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's one way of putting it. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that um, probably next week as we, as we move forward in the, the book of Acts. But I, I, I just wanted to kind of rehearse this with you because we, we can't overstate the importance of this, as I said. We, we just simply cannot. And it was a revolutionary thing that was being done by God in the, in the heart of Peter, which would spread to the heart of, of, the, of the Jews who get saved, who recognize Jesus as their Messiah speaking him of him as jesus the christ and then welcoming others into the fold and this goes on of course in chapter 11 in chapter 15 of acts there's going to be a council that is going to be held among the 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 the, the leaders of the church the apostles of course being being the, the main part of that and determining, okay, well, what are, we, what are we going to do about these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ? They are be, being saved from their sins. You know, do we require them to become Jews or not? That's the issue there. So this is going to be going on for a little while, a huge, huge issue within the early church and it becomes something practical for us because of different kinds of prejudices and even the reality that, that, that there are times that with, within a church, some members of that church, because of whatever difference there may be, can be regarded as a second-rate citizen of the church. And obviously, obviously, we need to guard against that. What well, we see here, the way that that... Luke writes this. He says, Peter opened his mouth. And we're kind of thinking, well, of course he did. He spoke. You got to open your mouth to speak, right? Mm-hmm. You're not understanding what I'm saying if I don't open my mouth, right? But, but this is a way that we see that F.F. F. Bruce writing this. He says, the expression, then Peter spoke up, literally, Peter opened his mouth is one that is used to introduce some weighty utterance. The first words that Peter spoke were words of the weightiest import, sweeping away the racial and religious prejudices prejudices of century. This is the lesson he had just learned. But we see that term used in other places as well. Uh, Acts 8.35. Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, pre- preached Jesus to him. That's speaking of the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is why, that's why I stated earlier that, that these two verses really define what God is doing, beginning in chapter 8 up to this point and, and continuing through, really. In Ephesians 6, verses 19 to 20, we see Paul writing to the Ephesians and for me, he's asking for prayer, pray, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then in John 14:26, Jesus is speaking here, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to all things that I said bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So when we fill our heart with God's words when we fill our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ we can trust our Lord to bring by his holy spirit bring to remembrance the things that he's placed Within our hearts. And, and I'm sure every one of us in this room have at times experienced something that, you know, you might be sharing with somebody, you might be talking about the Lord, sharing the gospel, uh, perhaps. And, you know, they may come up with a question, and then you, you come up with this, with this verse or, or a passage from the scriptures as you re- re- rebut the argument that, that, that is given. And later on, you're thinking, man, where'd that verse? I haven't read that verse in years or, 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 or at least a year. I mean, if we're in the habit of reading through the Bible in a year, it might, might have been close to a year or something like that. But it's like, you know, it's amazing that the Lord brought that verse to mind for this situation. You know what I mean? I mean we, 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 uh, the Lord does that for us at times, you know. And, and if we open our mouths, we're willing to speak something of importance and can we speak of anything that is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody? Can we really? Are you guys confused? Can we really? No, not really. Huh? Not really. Wasn't a trick question. No partiality. Peter says, I perceive, I understand this vision that he had, this whole thing with God working in Cornelius and himself at the same time sending these messages, uh, Cornelius with the the angel speaking to him, him with the vision of the sheet and everything. You know, that that, that vision of the sheet wasn't about animals, it wasn't about food, it was people. I perceive, I perceive that. God shows no partiality. Huge, a huge statement. But in every nation, whether it's Israel, whether it's among the Philistines, whether it's among the Greeks, the Romans, whatever nation it might be, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter was being changed. He was acting upon it in obedience to the Lord. Earlier, we we, we heard from Vince as he was doing the announcement sharing out of Ezekiel 36 about holiness. And by living a life of holiness, others can see that the God of Israel indeed is truly God and that he is amongst his people. We um, we, we receive from Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the reality that as, as he speaks to us, gives us that command, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, love one another. All All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how people know you're a Christian, by loving one another. That's a part of the holiness, isn't it? Being being set apart by God to become more like Jesus. That sanctification process. We talked about that a little bit at the baptism yesterday. And, And... there, there is this process of becoming more like Jesus, which sets us apart from who we used to be and sets us apart from the rest of the world. Becoming more like Christ. That's what holiness is. Becoming different and set apart. And that's what people ought to see in us. Loving each other is a huge part of it. But, and, and this love being basically uh, pressed into Peter through changing some basic philosophical uh, doctrines that, that he had received, that he owned for himself. And the, and, and the Lord just kind of showed him, you know, it is okay to go into the house of a Gentile man to give the gospel to him because he's just like you. You're No different. He needs Jesus. Just like you need him. And one of the things, I was thinking about this too, and I didn't get this, get this in my notes, but just the idea that sometimes as we're going through these passages, like, like Peter speaking and, 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 and uh, uh, giving the gospel, whether it was the first message in Acts chapter 2 or, or this here, whatever it is, sometimes we, we don't bring into our thinking process the reality of, of Peter's experiences with the Lord. In like fact, I, I was thinking about this even while we were singing. Uh, we were singing Oceans earlier and walking on the water, right? You know, Peter did that, literally. That, that song is speaking about figuratively getting out there and walking on the water, doing things which are unnatural for people to do as God fills us with his spirit and enables us to have some kind of a spiritual impact in somebody's life. But, you know, it's like Peter did that. This man who he is following, who he calls his Lord, who he saw crucified, raised from the dead, this teacher of his, God, manifest in the flesh, he, while Peter had his eyes fixed on him, Jesus called him out upon the water and Peter actually got out of the boat, and he was walking on water. He experienced that. The only human being, aside from Jesus himself, whoever, could, whoever did that. And so these are some of the things that go into him with his, with his boldness to speak. And, and I think that that helps him also with the idea of, of how... Not only having the boldness to speak, but believing the reality of the truth of the things that are spoken. So hearing the voice from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Doesn't say, but I, I wonder if that was actually Jesus speaking to him. His voice. You know, it doesn't say, but I've got to wonder. But hearing that voice, it's like, okay, Lord. You know, he he raised his objection, but bottom line, okay, Lord. Every nation, in every nation, Peter's previous understanding was that that was not the case. But now he sees it. I don't know how many of you have have noticed that, especially in the last few years, and recently it has come to uh, the, the forefront. But you know, there, there's a movement in our country uh, toward Christian nationalism. How many of you guys have seen that taking place? You, maybe you read about it or you hear something about it. Yeah, a few of you. You know, Christian nationalism basically is the idea that that um, we need to somehow, as a nation, we had, our, our legislators need to put something into place, even, even possibly a, 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 another a, a amendment, a new amendment, saying that, that we will not depart from the Christian roots of our nation and that laws need to be passed in accordance with the truth of God's word, things of that nature, you know. Um, and while I agree that we had our, our nation started off with a group of, of people wanting to, the, the freedom to worship God as God led them to do so. You know, that, 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 that brings some dangers because even the idea of Christian nationalism, if you're not a Christian, that somehow, if, if we move in that direction as Christians, and, and, and I have to say that being in this chapter speaks very, very loudly to us about the idea that, no, we can't have something like that. Yes, people within the country maintaining faith in Christ and being used by God to bring the gospel to others, but that can't be legislated. It can't be legislated. It's got to be within our hearts. And while we grieve that our nation has moved away from where we once were, it's not the it's not the job of the legislature of our country to do something like that. It's the job of the church. The church. As we do things like Peter's doing here. One by one. Neighbor by neighbor, loved one by loved one, coworker by coworker. Hearing the gospel from us, seeing the gospel lived out by us, and seeing that there is something real about Jesus Christ—that's how it's going to happen. And recently, I, I witnessed an interview between a pastor and, and one of the Congress uh, uh, persons who is uh, basically, you know, saying that, that this ought to be happening. And in the, in, in the interview, the, this, this pastor ma- made the statement that, you know, about Christian nationalism, yeah, we need to move toward that. And, and then he was, he, w- he was citing the, the way that, that our nation has been blessed by God and doing the various things that we've done and, and, and so forth, you know, building hospitals and the way that, he's, that the Lord's blessed us and so forth in the past. And, and then he, I think, getting caught up in the emotion of the moment, he said, God is a nationalist. And when I heard that, I said, what? It's like, pastor, what gospel are you reading? You know, and, and I thought in my heart, you know, read Acts chapter 10 and then tell me that God is a nationalist. He's not. Not even close. And even in the Old Testament, he makes statements in regard to, to the, the fact that his, his word is going to go out. So that the prophets speak about in the end times how Every nation and tribe and, 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 and tongue is going to be coming to worship Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, absolutely not. And the idea of nationalism somehow uh, um, linked to Christianity, God forbid. God forbid. Patriotism, yes. Nationalism, no. Patriotism, yes, but nationalism, no. And that's the very thing that God is working in Peter to move the church of Jesus Christ away from as it starts among the Jewish people, the church. And and, and we, we, we've been citing passages about this as we've been going through these passages, as we've been going through Acts chapter 10. You know, um God is correcting that particular kind of mindset in this chapter, isn't he? He's correcting that kind of mindset. So every nation, people of every nation. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we see these words. And they sang a new song. This is a, this is a scene, scene in heaven. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we too, there's no person who's a part of the church today who can say that we've come by any particular relationship within a nation, within a church, it's coming to the person, God himself, manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus, receiving salvation. Whoever fears God with, and, and works righteousness, Peter said, is accepted by God. And there's an emphasis on the word whoever. Remembering, of course, that Jesus is speaking to a Gentile and a, a group of Gentiles here. In, in Cornelius' Cornelius's home. Whoever fears God, this fear, of course, is a, is, is a holy reverence. It is a respect. It is an admiration that takes place. And uh, the three men who had been sent by Cornelius uh, to get Peter in, in uh, Joppa to bring him to uh, Caesarea, described Cornelius as a man who feared God. And the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write about him, describing him that way earlier in the chapter in verse 2. In uh, Vines' Dictionary of New Testament Words, it describes reverential fear of God like this, as a controlling motive of the life. In matters spiritual and moral, not a mere fear of his power, and righteous retribution, but a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. A fear which banishes the terror that shrinks from His presence. Fearing God. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Father. In Vines, it also says, this fear of God also influences the disposition and the attitude of one whose circumstances are guided by trust in God through the indwelling Spirit of God. In the world that we live in, guys, we have to live by trust in God, don't we? Acknowledging Him to be sovereign, acknowledging Him to be omnipotent, that He can do anything, And just coming before him with the troubles that we find in life and laying them on his altar and saying, Okay, Lord, you in your sovereignty and in your goodness and in your love and in your mercy and your kindness and your grace, you've brought this to me. Give me the grace to deal with it. Lord, I would ask you to change it. You know, we, we, when we deal with the, the, the sickness or the illness of loved ones, as I am with my wife, you know, every day I pray, God, God, change this. Heal her. Please heal her. But then my next sentence is, but Lord, if you don't, give us the grace to live faithfully in you as we go through this difficulty. What are you going to do? You know, and there are many people in this room who, who have prayed that same prayer, continue to pray that same, same prayer. You know, Kip, I look at you sitting in that wheelchair right now. I think of you as, as I, I say those things. I know that you and your precious wife, Ellen, are praying the same thing. You know, and, and whatever we go through, whatever difficulty it might be, whatever affliction it is, that, that, that's how we deal with that. But we need to trust in him by his indwelling spirit. First Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality, okay, Peter's writing this after he spoke these words in Acts 10. Without partiality, judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And so, the fear of God. and working righteousness, we have an understanding of what that is. The one one verse I I, I want to to, uh, bring you to is in John 6, verses 28 and 29, two verses, really. We see it reading this way. The people asked Jesus a question. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And believing, of course, being that basic element of trusting ourselves entrusting ourselves into his care, placing ourselves there, and then doing his bidding. For Cornelius, obviously, as a man who feared God, was doing uh, works of righteousness, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Because God sent him to Cornelius that he would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's enough to be a relatively good person in our culture, but it's not enough to be delivered from your sins. It's not enough for salvation. It's not enough to spend eternity in heaven with God. And Cornelius needed to hear this because of that reality. uh, the Apostle Paul declared in his letter to the Philippians that he was concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. And then, right after that, in Philippians three verses seven to eleven, he wrote this: "But what things, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss, for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord." "...for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death." If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Powerful, powerful passage. I may count them as rubbish. Whatever good things I've done, whatever I've attained in the past, it's nothing but rubbish. And as I've shared with you in the past, looking at this word, if you have the King James, the old King James version of the Bible in your lap, you'll see rather than rubbish, it says dung. That's what that word means. That's how repulsive... That's how repulsive actions that we do that we think are going to somehow earn us some kind of favor from God. It's rubbish. It's, It's dung. He goes on here, Peter. In verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This idea of peace, did you guys come to church this morning with peace in your hearts, having the peace of God? Isn't it a beautiful thing? Even in the midst of the troubles that that we live with, the midst of what's going on in our nation, what's going on in our world, and then the personal issues that we've got going on and everything in the midst of it all that we can have. The peace of God in our hearts, in our lives—it's an amazing thing. Paul calls it in his um, letter to the Philippians. I just read from that later on in chapter four. He calls it the peace of that passes all understanding, and it does—it does—it—it—it it, 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 it does become that. We're going to read that in just a moment. In fact, the peace of God—I'll read that now: Philippians four six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The cure for anxiety here is prayer and supplication unto a God who we believe hears those prayers. I mean, it's all, it's, all, it's all contingent on believing that God really is who he is, that he really does hear our prayer, that he will answer our prayer. He, he's got our good in mind. He's all powerful. He's all good. He, he, he can do anything, and he's got our best interest in mind. So we pray, and it allows us to rest with his peace because we know he's in control. If we don't believe that about God, this won't work. But if we do, it does. It doesn't, I mean, isn't that true? Yeah. It gives us peace. But not only do we have the peace of God, even more importantly than that, it gives us peace with God. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, Therefore remember that you, Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, which is a group of Greeks who had come to faith in Christ, okay? Remember you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You guys remember when you were in that place? having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near by the blood of Christ. What a powerful truth that is. And then there's also the idea of peace with men. So there's peace with God primarily because the enmity between us and him is broken down by the cross. And then there's the peace of God that he places within our hearts. And then there is the possibility of having peace with other people. Peace with men. Again, Ephesians 2, we've quoted from this passage several times as we've gone through this chapter. Here we are again. But look at this. For he himself is our peace, verse 14 to 18 in Ephesians 2. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, speaking of the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles there, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one through the cross, thereby Putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. It's not through a bloodline, it is through the Spirit of God. And having access based on the work of Jesus on that cross, that 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 separation from uh, in front of the, uh, the the curtain in front of the holy of Holies in the temple was torn down from the top to bottom God saying basically come to me come to me and Jesus of course is Lord of all as we see here in this passage he is Lord of all verse 36 first Timothy 6:15. Paul writes, the blessed and only potentate sovereign, that's what that word means, the King of kings and Lord of lords, speaking, of course, of Jesus. Revelation 19, 16, Jesus has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, this is him coming, again, c- coming this time on, on that white stallion to make war, to defeat the enemy. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, and Lord of lords. That's, that's who we worship, isn't it? And we can get all caught up, and we tend to do this. We get caught up in his power, going, yes, we're going to rule, we're going to reign, we're going to win, you know. But we need to approach all this with hearts of humility and meekness, allowing God to do his work in us, to change us. Peter speaks of Jesus being anointed by God, the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You know, it's interesting how how, how Peter says this because one of the the things with Peter, and and, and I alluded to it in some sense earlier about his own experience with Christ. I mean, he, he... He walked with this man. He spent time with this man. You know, sometimes uh, we don't think about Jesus as a man. You know, I mean, he's God. Of course he is. And it's just all all the more miraculous about this idea of of, of Jesus being both 100% God and 100% man, being God and man, you know, but... But but Peter came to knew him, to, to know him as as a man. He walked with him in the flesh, you know. As he says here, after he was raised from the dead, he, he ate with them, ate and drank with them. You know, uh, just a proof of the reality of of the resurrection. But he speaks of Jesus and says that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, as if he wasn't God. And, and, and needed that, and yet he was a man. Did he need that? And that, that's a controversial topic of, to, to talk about, because there's some who would say that well, Jesus, being God, didn't need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit because he already had the power of God within him, and yet he gave up some of his deity, some of his privileges as God when he took on human flesh. Did he need the Holy Spirit? I, I believe he did. That's why Peter writes it this way. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and that's what enabled him to do the works of miracles that he did. He didn't do miracles before that. It's always intrigued me that it was when Jesus was about to enter into his ministry, God poured his Holy Spirit upon him. If Jesus needed that, boy, sure you need it, and I need it, big time. We need to be anointed. We need the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. In Luke chapter four, verses sixteen to nineteen, a very powerful passage. I have to be careful; I don't want to, I don't want to get carried away with this, but very powerful. Uh, th- this is this passage in Luke, verses sixteen to nineteen in chapter four. This is in this section we see Luke, of course, who wrote Acts. Uh, quoting from Jesus for the first time after he begins his ministry. Uh, He's in Nazareth, so he came to Nazareth. This was after he was anointed, after the Holy Spirit came upon him, after he was sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, came back from that, and and he was preaching, he was going into the synagogues and so forth. And here we see he came to Nazareth. "...where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read." Luke writes of Jesus opening up the book of Isaiah and reading this passage about how God had poured the Holy Spirit upon him and anointed him. And of course the word Messiah, 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 Christ, it means anointed one. The anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. Sent to do all of this. And it's interesting that Jesus does this in Nazareth where he was raised. This became controversial because even as he said this, they, they marveled at what he had to say. And they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph's stepson? They didn't know that. Oh, well, they must have heard the, the things that Mary must have said. What took place. But anyway, again, I'm going to get carried away with this. But, you know, Jesus chose Nazareth to do this. And and, and by the way, as as a teacher, as a guest teacher in a synagogue, he would be given honor, the honor of reading the passage for that day. And and it was like a liturgical kind of a thing. All throughout the, the, the synagogues in Israel, they would all read the same passage of Scripture every day. Jesus, of course, knew this, and he made sure he was in Nazareth to read this. Isn't that interesting? And then he sat down and taught them. Told them this. The spirit of the, in reading this. After, after afterward, he sat down and said, "Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." This is an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. But he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter preaches. We see, um, as Peter claims to be a witness, he preaches, and we, and we see down in verse 42 about how Jesus commanded them to preach. But back in verse Uh, 39, he said that we are witnesses to these things, of all which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging him on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. So the witnessing aspect of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Peter preaches about being a witness. Peter preaches about all that Jesus did, that Jesus, of course, is the Christ, that Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit is the Christ. We see it common in, 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 the, in the preaching uh, of, uh, of the book of Acts. In, in chapter 8, we see Philip speaking of preaching Christ to them. Uh, eight, verse, five, verse 35, we already quoted this verse, that he preached Jesus to the uh, Ethiopian as the Christ. Uh, Acts 9.22, Saul spoke of Jesus as the Christ, proving that this Jesus is the Christ in that verse. Um, and we, you may remember that back in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, in verse 19, that as, as Peter, in his second sermon, he speaks about the repentance that is required upon the, the hearers of his word, the repentance, which really is speaking about their attitude about who Jesus is as the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, a very, very important thing. And then, of course, the witnesses. Second Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. We see uh, Peter writing this, "'For we did not follow cunningly devised fables "'when we made known to you the power "'and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty.'" For he received from God the, the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Similar words were spoken at, his, at Jesus' baptism at the, at the Jordan River. But they saw him. They were eyewitnesses to his glory. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, John writes, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Witnesses, a very important aspect of what we see in the New Testament. It's interesting that those who write as eyewitnesses, whether it's John or Peter or others, many people read what they read what they, what, what they said, what they wrote in, in terms of being witnesses, but they don't believe them to be eyewitnesses for some reason. But you have somebody writing about Alexander the Great. Cool, that happened. That's real. You know what I mean? I mean, there's something mystical about this idea of being an eyewitness to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, manifest in the flesh. Just won't accept it. Just won't accept it. And I believe the reason is because it requires some kind of life change and people don't want to change the way that they're living. And so they just write it up as some kind of a fable. As Peter said, no, we didn't. This wasn't our imagination. It's not a fable. We were there. We saw it. We handled him. We touched him. We heard his voice. We saw him die. We saw him raised. We ate with him after he was raised from the dead. Yes, he was killed and he really was bodily. This really happened. We saw it. We saw it. Amazing, amazing. Well, Jesus did good. He healed and all. And, and something that is interesting is that, that throughout, the book, throughout the book of Acts, we see the, the apostles just kind of honing in on focusing on the reality of, of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, which a, a chapter that we call the resurrection chapter. In it, verses 13 and 14, he said, But if there is no resurrection, and of course Paul's writing about the truth of it, but he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then everything that we believe about him and all that he did, it's meaningless, It's meaningless, fruitless. There's no point to it. Jesus defeated death. He was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection body, he is at the right hand of God right now, praying for you and for me and directing the affairs of men all headed to that time where all will bow before him. Peter said if this thing wasn't done, this, this resurrection, the proof of it wasn't done, uh, or that it was done openly. We ate with him. It wasn't done as if it was to some kind of secret society that, that, that people have to join and learn the secrets of the knowledge that they have and so forth. No, it was, it was openly. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, We see these words, Paul writes, For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, it was spoken about beforehand, and that he was seen by Cephas, that of course is Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Go find them and talk to them about it. They saw him. So it was, it was done openly. After that, he was seen by James then by the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So as Peter was commanded to preach, uh, Paul was commanded to preach, all of the apostles were commanded to preach, and in reality, all of us are commanded to preach as well. Not, not get behind a pulpit like I am this morning necessarily, but to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and the reality of his resurrection. By the way, just, just a question. As, as we see the resurrection so important in the book of Acts, I think it's a question that we have to ask ourselves is, how long has it been since, since I, since we, in speaking to a loved one or a friend about the gospel and their hesitancy to to accept it, how long have we pointed out to them the reality of the the resurrection of Christ? Many people wrote about it. Many many people independently wrote about it. Each, Each one of the gospel writers independently wrote about it. Paul the Apostle independently wrote about it. It was something that was, was done independently of men. And then the Bible, of course, was all these various writings gathered together and declared to be inspired by the Spirit of God. But they were written independently of one another. Multiple witnesses to the truth. In our court of law, multiple witnesses is a very powerful, powerful Uh, a tool used to bring justice. Same with this. But you know, guys, as I noted a moment ago, I I believe that the hesitancy of of people is the reality that that people don't want to change their lives. But so often what they don't want to change is the life of sin that they are embroiled in. And some of us probably had that kind of hesitation too. Well, I don't know, Lord. I remember when I came to the Lord, Lord before I did, you know, he was, he was drawing me. He was drawing me. And I, as this 21 year old man, I was just turning 21, and, and I wanted to do some fun, sinful things legally. So I hesitated, you know. I think all of us do that. That's, that, that's the hesitation people have. So it's, sin is the issue. We we we've got always to understand that sin is the issue, and the person of Jesus is the issue in terms of the one who overcomes the sin. You know, we have to understand who He is. We understand what He did. We have to understand why He did it. And on a personal issue, it's the sin that we're involved in. Let's not take it anywhere else. That's where it needs to be. Jesus came to save the world. From its sin. Came to save the world from its sin. That's why he came. And so I want to encourage you. As we understand this. And and, and just going through verses 41 through 43. Speak about that witness. Of of, of Christ. And the command to preach and so forth. Um, Verse 43. To him all the prophets witness. That through his name. Whoever believes in him. Will receive remission of Sins. Sins is the issue. That's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. But along with that come many, many other blessings. The grace that we receive from God to live our lives in a way that is actually pleasing to him. But, you know, I I, I encourage you. Open your mouth and speak the truth of who Jesus is to those around you. Loved ones who you are wanting to be a witness to and you have been a witness to, and maybe it's been a while, do a refresher course for them. Remind them of who Jesus is and why they need him. And remind them also that for the same reason, you came to him because you needed him too. We needed him too, didn't we? And we still need him every single day. It's just an amazing thing that God does in our lives. I just encourage you to to share the gospel to preach the gospel. As Francis of Assisi said at one time, he said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel through the life that you live, but speak the words. It's important to speak the words as well when it's necessary to do so. And Father, help us. Lord, would you anoint us with the power of your Spirit and with the gift of your Spirit, and the gifts that he brings to us the reality of our need to bring people into a relationship with Jesus, which you do by your Spirit through us, but we need to be aware of that. We need to have an understanding of the need for that. Just as Peter was willing to go to go into this Gentile home to speak the words that you gave to him as he, as, as he opened his mouth to speak your truth, to welcome every Gentile who would place their faith and trust in you and follow you and obey you that they too are safe from their sin. And help us, God. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us. Even as our eyes are closed right now and our heads are bowed, I would want to ask anyone here as a believer as one who knows that that knows the gospel you know Jesus you look at your own life right now and people around you are you being faithful to share God's truth you know maybe you haven't for a while because the lord has led you in that place but you need to follow his leading his guiding as the holy spirit does that leading but maybe for some of us, we've just kind of forgotten all about it. We've just kind of moved on. Is the Lord speaking to your heart right now? If you would like prayer to begin once again to be more faithful in speaking the gospel to your friends and your your loved ones, would you raise your hand right now? Eyes, eyes closed, heads bowed. God bless you. Number of hands raised. Anyone else? Anyone else? God bless you. I pray for these. You may lower your hands. I pray for these who have raised their hands, Lord. I pray for your anointing to come upon them, Lord. Even as you were upon Jesus, come upon us as well. Even as you were with Peter, come upon us as well. Might we be willing to speak? More importantly, might we be willing to live the gospel? But speak it as well. God, I pray that you just have your way. And I look forward to hearing the, the, the stories that begin to come as we, as, as a fellowship, just kind of step it up in terms of our witness to those around us. As the church, being the church, reminding them of the love of God for, for, for mankind. As you've shown that love to us, others around us as well. Help us, God. As well, I would want to ask this. If there's anyone here in this room who perhaps, even hearing the gospel preached this morning, Through the Word of God, if you want to give your heart to Jesus even now, you're you're seeing that, yes, He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He died for my sins. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to follow Him as my Savior. Just raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you. I see one hand raised right now. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. God bless you. Oh, how we need Jesus, and how how kind He is to do what He's done for us. Anyone else want to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior today? Father, I lift these two to you who have their hands raised. I pray that you just have your way in their hearts. Lord, that even today, even right now, the the weight of sin, Lord, lift it from them. Because, Jesus, you took it from them when you bore their sin on the cross. As you bore every sin that any of us in this room has ever or ever will commit. Thank you. Lord Jesus, you came for the purpose of taking away the sins of the world, taking away the sin of every individual who would place their trust in you. And as these two have said, I want to put my trust in Jesus. Lord, free them, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, fill them. Might they leave from this place with a sense of joy, with a sense of hope. And God, thank you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys.